and uh, everybody else will be in John, as Kent prayed, we'll be in John 5 today. Today we're in a new section of John, so we're calling this new series of messages Opposition Rising. We're going to look the next several weeks through John 5, 6, and 7. It's in this section of John that the conflict with Jesus really begins and steadily increases throughout those three chapters. There's a lot of opposition to Jesus in the Gospel of John, and there's a lot of opposition to Jesus still today. So may this be helpful to us as we consider how we share Christ uh, today. Leslie Murphy is going to come for us and read John chapter 5, 1 through 18. So follow along with her, or there's a Bible underneath the seat if you need one. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another one steps before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is a Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said that to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Amen. Thank you, Leslie. I'm going to keep your little toy here. Your fake Bible? I think it's the, it still counts, don't you all? Yes. Thanks for reading for us, Leslie. The main idea of this text is that Jesus, who is compassionate and divine, gives wholeness and meets opposition. Jesus is compassionate. He's God. He can give wholeness, and he meets opposition. There's a lot we could talk about here from this story, but I want the main point to be clear. And why is it so important that that's clear? Well, hopefully if you've been with us the last several weeks, you've heard the end of John enough that it's beginning to stick. Just in case, let me read it again. Toward the end of the book, it says in John 20, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What's written in the Gospel of John is written that people would come to believe in Jesus and that by believing they would find life, eternal life, in his name. Belief is one of those difficult words uh, for us today will say, uh, am I going to see you tomorrow? Well, I believe so. Meaning, uh, I think so, maybe, maybe not. That's not the kind of belief that John is writing for. John is writing in order that we would come to have a correct knowledge of who God is, in particular who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And that we wouldn't just have that knowledge, but that we would agree with it, that we would see it as significant and impactful. And then finally, that we would trust in Jesus, that 
the knowledge would lead to a submission to that God who gave us the knowledge, that we would turn from sin and turn to Him. If we put that in a math equation, I bet you saw that sentence coming, it would be, we could say knowledge plus agreement plus trust. This is biblical belief or biblical faith. John's writing, he's accurately recording historical events in order to invite all people who would read the Gospel of John to learn about Jesus, to acknowledge the significance of Jesus, and to trust Jesus. So that's what we're seeking to accomplish today as we study together. This beautiful story in John 5 is recorded that we would believe. My prayer is today that if you have not yet done so, that you would. Because Jesus is a compassionate God who gives wholeness and meets opposition. The scene for our passage today is a sad one. It's a pool or pools in Jerusalem in a place called Bethesda. Here's a picture of the area that's been excavated. So if you were to go to Jerusalem today, you could go to this spot. And isn't it fascinating that these rails look so modern that are there? (laughs) The word colonnade refers to a, a porch. And you'll notice there's two porches that are clearly visible, two roofed areas through which people would pass and they would sit or lay underneath the sun to be shielded. Down below the second one, you'll see behind the second rail, is where these pools uh, would have been. So John's not claiming to tell us a myth. That's not what the Bible is. He's claiming to tell us about a real person who encountered a real Jesus and whose life was forever changed in a place called Bethesda. Two pools side by side were surrounded by four of these porches with one in the middle. So that's where this happened. I said it was a sad scene because it was a place of tremendous brokenness. If you look closely at verse 3, it says that they lay a multitude of invalids. These were people who were blind or lame or paralyzed. People chronically ill. People who had experienced some of the harshest things life has to offer. People with nowhere else to go. Those who are genuinely hopeless and helpless. That's where they hung out. There was no Medicaid or Medicare in first century Jerusalem. Obamacare was yet to be invented. The state didn't give access. Nobody had disability insurance. You couldn't draw a pension and retire early. None of that existed. If you had a significant physical problem in the first century, then either your family took care of you or you starved or you were homeless or you were on the street. There was no social welfare. So add poverty, hunger, friendlessness, danger, shame, and homelessness to physical disease and chronic pain. That's what you had if you had a physical ailment in the first century. And this is where they gathered. While some of those issues are better today, our society is hardwired to provide some sense of compassion and financial resources. But many people with disabilities still face many of the same problems and struggles. Now notice again in verse 3, it uses the word multitude. So there wasn't a few, there was many, maybe hundreds of crippled people lying around here. Now why hang out there? Well, Verse 7 indicates that some people thought of this place as a place that had healing power. Now, there's nothing in the rest of the Bible that would lead us to think there was some kind of magic water present in this place. 
So really what you had is a little bit of Bible sprinkled with a whole bunch of folklore. And this system of thought that if you hang out here, gather in the shade, and you wait for one of these pools to bubble up, then the first person to get into the water would be healed. Their problems would go away. Now, we can look at that and say that's absurd. Only weirdos who before modern science would ever think of crazy things like that. But if you have a problem, a physical problem, go home and Google that problem today. And guess what you're going to find? All kinds of the same silliness. We really haven't evolved as much as we think we have. This pool was likely fed by a spring, and at times the water flow was greater than others, which caused a, a bubbling up effect. And over time, there was this belief that that spring was actually caused by an angel stirring up the water. So here this man, along with many, many others, had gathered, gathered in hopes of the little bubbles giving them healing. Hundreds of people, blind, lame, feverous, deformed from birth, injured on the job, deaf, all the rejects, this was their crib. It's a place of overwhelming sadness. Now, Jesus came to Jerusalem for a feast, for a festival, and he got a few moments alone. And where did he go? Well, in this case, Jesus didn't go to the halls of power. He didn't hang out with those of privilege. He went there. Isn't that encouraging? Jesus went right into the place where all the despicable people were. Imagine him wandering through all of that brokenness. Everywhere he looked was somebody in need. Imagine the smell. People who hadn't bathed in weeks, months, open sores. Imagine the sounds. Moaning. The clanking of a pottery cup, a clay cup for those strong enough to hold one up, asking for money. That's probably it. All there with the belief that if the water gets stirred up, then I can get there first, and the God of everything will bring healing to my body. This is God incarnate walking and wandering among those with the greatest, most visible needs. In this sea of sickness, one man in particular caught Jesus' attention. Look at verse 5. One man was there who'd been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Notice a couple of things about these verses. First, John is very precise to record the detail that Jesus saw and Jesus knew. This man was a paralytic. He was disabled. He'd been carried around on a mat for almost four decades or he didn't go anywhere. There were no power chairs. There were no wheelchairs. Didn't have one of those cool scooter things that you saw me on for a year. There was a mat. So he was dependent on the pity and the mercy of others or he didn't go anywhere for four decades. This was the kind of person that most of us, without saying anything to anybody, this isn't the kind of thing you would admit, but it's the kind of person that if you're walking to work, you make sure and go a different way because you don't want to have to pass by him. Either you'll 
be disgusted by him or you'll feel guilty that you don't stop and give him something. These are the, the unnoticed kinds of people. But Jesus saw. Jesus knew. The attention of the creator of the universe is drawn towards those in need. Friend, if you feel overlooked or alone, cast aside, unwanted, you may in fact have people in your life who treat you that way. But that isn't who God is. God sees. God knows. Your needs don't escape the eyes and ears of God. The compassion of Jesus is what drove him down to this pool, and it's what drove him in particular to this man. There are many traits, of course, that ought to describe us as a church, but certainly compassion ought to be one of them. Jesus is compassionate. We are his people, his body. Therefore, we must be compassionate. Right? Are we? Does a, a compassionate care exist and exude from us as Church on Mill? And in particular, is this compassion driving us towards sacrificial service, towards anybody that we're able to meet their needs, but in particular towards fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, towards our church family. The Jesus who bought us is compassionate, and he has commissioned us to be compassionate on his behalf. God in Christ displayed ultimate compassion for our sin. And may we display gratitude for him by being compassionate toward one another. There, there is no pool of Bethesda where people in need of healing gather today. But there is no shortage of people in need in Tempe, Arizona. Everywhere we turn, we can see them. They're in the room today. You are one of them. Our church property is located in a city full of people with the clear need for the compassion of Jesus. Youth dealing with the normal questions and struggles of adolescence. Their need is greater today than ever. We live in a society that's gone completely mad, pressing agendas on them of things that the rest of us have not given much thought to. They need our compassion. There's homeless people all around us. The working poor, mentally ill, those entangled in drugs. We're in the shadow of a university where tens of thousands of people are. But I wonder how many university students feel completely alone in a sea of thousands. There's senior adults who hurt every moment of every day and feel run over by a society that despises aging and prizes youth. We're surrounded by people in need of the compassion of Jesus. And that compassion flows today through his church, through us. But make no mistake, the People who need compassion are not only people like this guy in the story. There are also people who are rich, and beautiful, successful, healthy. Don't let the way someone appears mask what's going on in the inside. See, brokenness doesn't discriminate. Hardship will come to every human being. We will all need the compassion of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ from time to time. Jesus sees and Jesus knows. Therefore, may we see, may we know. 
Notice one other thing about verse 6. Jesus' question, do you want to be healed? You can't make this stuff up. This is as though Jesus was the original Conan O'Brien, just asking off-the-wall, bizarre, weird things. Doesn't it strike you that way? It did, it did me, and it did me. But it's not so ridiculous of a question if you slow down long enough to really think it through. You see, when, when we have significant struggles for any length of time, that struggle can become the very foundation of our lives. It can take on and consume our entire sense of who we are. The disease can become the identity. You can lose yourself. You can become unable to think about or talk about anything else. Pain and loneliness can sour and harden the heart. And that pain and loneliness and bitterness can be worse than the disease itself. So I don't think it's that odd of a question at all. Jesus, I imagine, stooped down to this man. Couldn't get quite eye level without laying on the ground. But he got close. He said, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Now remember where this guy is. He's by this pool because he thinks this pool will bring healing to him. But every time the spring sprung, if you will, he, like this, tried to crawl into the water. But somebody else always beat him. So his response is, of, of course, I want to be healed. But think about that question for a minute. Friend, do you actually want wellness? Do you want to be healed? There are many sick people who don't actually want that. And in particular, there are many people who are spiritually sick who don't want that. Jesus is asking, do, do you want to be healed? And if we frame that question in light of all that the Gospel of John is about, in particular, he's asking us through that question, do you want to be set free from sin? Do you want to be given spiritual health through the Gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, this man responds that no one will help him down, so he always misses his opportunity. But a detail that I find so encouraging is that Jesus doesn't engage in that debate with him. Jesus knew this water doesn't have magical powers, but he doesn't even address that with him. Why? Well, I think it's because the man knew his need. He knew, I can't fix this. Of course I want to be healed, but somebody else is going to have to do it. I can't heal myself. In other words, he was at a place of humility. He was broken. He knew he had nowhere else to turn. Friend, if you are looking for Jesus to make you well, you have to reach that point. Jesus doesn't come in with a crowbar. He uses need to soften the hard heart so he can implant the desire and will respond to him. Jesus recognized that that man knew his need. That's the ingredient required to see God do the miraculous. Jesus sees, Jesus knows, Jesus engages. We admit need, and Jesus responds. Look at his response, verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up. Take your bed and walk. With those few words, what had hindered this man for 38 years was solved. Jesus was healed. Just think of the power of those words. This dude 
well, I didn't just have had the problem of whatever made him crippled in the first place. He would have had extreme deformity. His legs would have been like little pencils. But Jesus just spoke words and it solved the underlying problem and restored his legs such that in a moment, this man could get up and walk. And the mat that had always been carrying him, he now carried away. What a picture of the power of God. Incredible. Jesus made him whole. Jesus saw. Jesus knew. Jesus sees you. Jesus knows your needs. But let's go back to the big idea for a minute. Jesus, compassionate and divine, gives wholeness. Ought to be, period. But that's not the way the story actually went. See, the compassionate God in skin met extreme opposition. So much opposition that it, in fact, got him killed. And this is the very beginnings. This is the first place in the whole book of John where we're told that there's outright hostility towards Jesus. Why would a, the compassionate healing of a man invoke hatred? Why would that occasion bring about opposition? Well, there's two words for it. Godless religion. Godless religion. That's what prompted this bit of conflict. You might call it legalism or moralism or fundamentalism. All those isms are getting at the same essential thing. A system of religion in which God has been lost. A system of religion in which it's believed that conformity to external religious observances will ensure rightness with God. In other words, what you do will earn you something before God. In Jesus' day, the conservative ruling religious people were called Pharisees. They were the, the ultimate insiders. They were the ones who knew their Bibles and followed the rules. Now, where did they come from? Well, if you read through your Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, they're not there. But when you turn the page in your Bible from Malachi chapter 4 over one page to that title page that says New Testament, you have turned one page, but over 400 years had transpired. And somewhere in that time period, this religious party had grown up. And there's no reason to think that they hadn't started off really well. That they didn't begin with the intention of being people serious about following God. Of covenanting, of committing together to pursue Him as the ultimate aim in life. But over time, they added rules upon rules upon rules upon rules to the point that it became a stench in God's nostrils in which the heart of biblical faith had been lost almost entirely. If that doesn't send a shiver up your spine, Christian, something's wrong. The same thing can happen to us. May we not look at them in arrogance, but learn that we too can fall prey to godless religion. Now, why do they get upset? Well, verse 9 says that Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath. What in the world does that mean? The Sabbath was Saturday. It still is, I guess. The Sabbath was the day in Exodus 20 that God said, this day is to be remembered. It's to be set aside. You're not to do any of your normal work on this day. It's a day for rest. It's a day for worship. It's a day for being with other God followers and enjoying their community. 
It's a day from which you ought to pause all the demands of regular life and just enjoy rest and rejuvenation. Now, these Pharisees knew that command. Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And so what happened over time is they said, well, if we're going to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, then let's create another set of rules to make sure we don't break that rule. And then over time, another and another and another. And again, the original intent was good. But over time, you ended up with things like this. You can't put in your false teeth on Saturday because that would be work. You have to cook all your food on Friday because you can't make a fire on Saturday. That would be work. You can't travel on Saturday because that would be work. You must take everything up high that's heavy and put it down at eye level where you can just reach it on Saturday because you can't lift anything heavier than a feather. I'm not making any of this up, by the way. Around the year 200, so after Jesus lived and died and rose again and ascended, a document was written called the Mishnah. Inside the Mishnah is a set, 39 of them, articles about things you can and can't do on the Sabbath. And in Jesus' day, this would have been part of oral tradition, just what everybody knew. This day designed by God to be a day of rest had become a day of suffocating burden and religiosity. So much so that here's a guy that Jesus miraculously healed. And these religious people see this man walking around, something they've never seen before. And they're mad. And all they can see is he's carrying his mat. That's too heavy to carry. He's not allowed to carry that mat. Friends, this is repugnant to the God of the Bible. This is a most grave error. But it is not a problem simply back then. This still happens today. They were so blinded by obeying their man-made rules that they disobeyed God's rules. Love God, love people. They didn't love him. And they didn't love this man who'd just been healed. The same legalistic, godless spirit of religion still rears its ugly head today. It can even happen in good churches, churches like Church on Mill. Let me give you some examples. When, when we turn issues of Christian conscience and freedom, okay, things which the Bible doesn't say, this is right or wrong, and we press those down on each other, and make them a test of obedience and say, we all must see that's exactly the same way. We are taking steps towards godless religion. Functionally, we can take good methods as a church, things that we found to be prudent and helpful. And if we say to everyone, you must do this, this way, exactly like this, when God has not said that, then we're taking steps towards godless religion. When we treat a new member with suspicion because he clearly doesn't know as much as we know, maybe he looks like he's lived a harder life. Maybe it appears that she's been around a bit before she came to faith. And we treat that member with suspicion. We don't engage them like we would somebody like us then we are stepping toward godless religion. We must always stoke the fire of the gospel in our hearts that that fire might not grow cold and die. We are ever in need 
of looking at each other, and reminding each other of the gospel so that we might not slip into this. But don't misunderstand me. It's never legalism to call each other, brothers and sisters, to obey God. If God has said something we must do, then we must do it. If he said something we must not do, then we must not do it. And it is not loving to not help each other grow up into obedience in Christ. But where God has not spoken, we would be wise not to say, this is what God has said, and somehow demand obedience that God doesn't. It's not legalism to call each other as Christians to obey God. It is legalism to call non-Christians to obey God if in that way we are teaching them. If you change your behavior, then you will find rightness with God. That isn't the gospel. The gospel is Jesus did for you what you should have done. Jesus died the death you should have died. Jesus rose again that you might have his life. That's the gospel. Now, of course, that has all kinds of implications on our behavior, but not in order to get rightness with God, but because he's already given it to us. We must, church, walk this line closely that we might walk in grace and truth. Or we just could wake up one day and be Pharisees. Now, I don't want to read too much into the text, but doesn't it seem like Jesus picked this fight? I mean, he goes on the Sabbath down to a place where there was great need, and then he heals somebody who would have had a mat. And he tells him, pick up your mat and go. I think he picked the fight. I think he wanted to make a point that the common religion of the day had lost the God of eternity. This is the first case of outright opposition to Jesus. Now look at Jesus' response, verse 17, if he didn't pick the fight before, he's going to pick it now. Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I'm working. Now, his point was clear. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus' response to legalism is that he has a unique relationship with God, that unlike anybody else, he is of the same essence as God. He is one with God. What God the Father does, Jesus does. This was a full frontal attack. Just Jesus is not messing around here. Here's what he's saying. The Sabbath reaches all the way back to the first book in your Bible, the book of Genesis. We're, we're told in a poem that God created the world. And in poetic language, it says this happened in six days. And what happened on the seventh? It says God rested. Now, was God somehow exhausted from all the creative work he'd been doing? Was he worn out? Did he need a day off? Did he need to prop his feet up and watch some football? No, of course not. Jesus' point seems to be this. The God rested on the seventh day, but he didn't stop working. He rested from the work of creating. But the world doesn't keep functioning on its own. It has to be always forever sustained by God. His power is what causes your heart to beat again, the sun to rise again, the air to be such that we can breathe it in. This doesn't just happen. 
God does this. And so God kept doing that every Sabbath, just like every other day. And in that way, God continually shows mercy to what he's created. Jesus is saying, my father, you've misunderstood. My father's always working. And I'm working too. Just like God providentially sustains the universe, Jesus sees. Jesus knows. Jesus can heal. It doesn't matter what day it is. This is the work that God is always doing. Such a picture of the power of God. There was a small fire burning, but Jesus poured gasoline on it. And this led to an explosion of religious hatred. Now, we'll talk about this more next week, but just in passing, when Jesus said, my father, understand that's not something you would have said. You didn't regard God personally as my father. You didn't talk about God like that. Jesus here is claiming to be of the same essence, of the same divinity. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming that he and the Father are one. I have no idea how many times someone has said to me, the the Bible never says, or Jesus never says, he's God. When I was in college and I didn't know the Bible very well and I tried to talk to people about my faith, that's what always came up. And I always looked stupid because I hadn't read this very closely. There is no question that's what Jesus is saying. Now, you've got to decide what you're going to do with that. Do you believe it or not? That is the fact that Jesus made that claim. I'm God. And their response to him shows us that's exactly what they understood him to be saying. They wanted to kill him. Now, what do we do with a story like this? There is no pool of Bethesda to go to today. So what do you do with it? We're we're not, most of us, talking to people who are angry that we would carry something on the Sabbath. What do we do with it? Let me make a couple suggestions. Let me ask the question Jesus asked. Do you, do you, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made whole? Do you want wellness? The reason I had us read John 20, 30 and 31 is to remind us together that the point of John 5 isn't if you just believe hard enough God promises he will heal you physically. That isn't what John 5 is in the Bible for. The guy that had the pencil legs and God healed and he carried his mat, guess what happened to him? He died. This man's legs didn't give him the ability to run up to heaven. His physical healing was not his most important need. He needed spiritual healing. He needed spiritual life. Do you want to be spiritually healed? This is why Jesus came. He came so that all who would accept his message, assent to his way of life, to turn from life without him and to accept him as Lord and Savior, that God would give you the most precious thing you could ever have, far better than correct working legs. He would take a dead spirit and make it alive. He would unite you with Christ and that will last forever. And all Christians will get restored bodies later. Some may get that now. But do you want to be healed? 
If so, then come to Christ today. Another application of this passage so important for us is that church, we together must be ever on guard against religious spirit. Moralistic, performance-driven, grace-absent, judgmental Christianity is no Christianity at all. Now, we don't live in the part of the country where this is common. It would be much more likely for somebody here to say to somebody else, another Christian in sin, God loves you, don't worry about it. You're already saved, it doesn't make any difference. Which, by the way, that's just as dangerous. But we still, particularly those of us who are wired to be rule followers, we still can fall into this spirit of religiosity. We must watch out for it. Yes, our behavior matters. Yes, we must spur one another on toward love and good deeds. But Christian obedience flows from a life already made right with God not out of a desire to become right with God. Christianity is that Jesus did for you what you should have done but couldn't do in order that his life could be given. Church, anytime you smell religiosity, spray it with the gospel. It is a stench to God. And it will do nothing but harm us as his people. Delight in God is what is to drive our obedience. And finally, brothers and sisters, let's be careful in studying our Bibles not to miss the one the Bible is ultimately about. The Pharisees knew their Old Testament better than any of us in this room ever will. In the sense of memorizing it, knowing what it said on the surface, seeking to obey its external observances, and yet they missed the, the point. It was always pointing forward to Jesus. The law was to be a tutor to teach us what we can't do. And they missed it. Be cautious in reading your Bible we don't miss it too. Every story points us back to Jesus who lived his life in our place, died his death in our place, ascended, sent the Spirit, and that power, Spirit power, is now what fuels Christian obedience. If we read the Bible and we don't see Jesus, we're not actually reading the Bible. May we help each other to read it well. And may God protect us from this tragic, damning error. Jesus, compassionate and divine, gives wholeness. And he meets opposition. But that opposition won't last forever. Next time Jesus comes, it won't be as a baby. It'll be as king. And he will bring a quiet forever to all opposition. If you're opposing him today, don't wait for that day. Respond to him today. Let's pray. Father, what a powerful story. We thank you that you bring healing and wholeness and give life pray today if there are any here who have not yet accepted you, that you through your word and your spirit would bring about them seeing their great spiritual need and responding to you. And we pray, God, you'd save. And Lord, for those of us who have already been rescued by you from our lives of sin, welcomed into your family. We pray that where we have drifted toward a godless religiosity, that you would forgive us. 
We pray that where we jump through hoops in order to be seen by others as being spiritual, that you would forgive us. We pray where we have displayed a a harshness, a, a lack of love, an absence of compassion, that you'd forgive us. We pray that as Jesus sees and Jesus knows, you would help us to see and to know. May we become a people of radical generosity where it would be normal that we would sacrifice for each other, that the world might see and be drawn to Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Chuck, for uh, reminding us that we need to be on guard against lapsing into religiosity, how easy it is for us to do that and uh, neglect following Jesus and reminding us that uh, Jesus is the only thing uh, that brings spiritual healing. Uh, My name is Mike, and I'm on staff here at Church on Mill directing family ministry, and I have a couple of announcements. And while I do that, our ushers are going to come forward and take our offering. Remember that this is a time for our members to give to the ministry here at, at Church on Mill. And it's time, if you're a guest with us, for you to share that, um, that uh, information card so we can know you better and minister to you better. Um, just a couple of things. First of all, you have a flyer in your bulletin that looks like this. It says, what is truth, what is love? And it's about our Disciple Makers Intensive this coming Saturday morning, 8.30 to noon. Now, that may seem seem like a long time to you, but it's going to be time really well spent. Um, We're going to be talking. uh, It's a time not just for people who are in Disciple Makers on Wednesday nights. We'll be there, but this is for everyone to come to to help you become a better Disciple Maker. We're going to be talking about two sessions. One is called What is Truth? Dissecting Tolerance and Autonomy and How to Talk About It. Tolerance and Autonomy are are the two things our culture, the culture you live in, values above all else. How do we, how do we share the gospel in a culture like that? And how do we keep to- that, that, that worldview uh, from affecting the way we share the gospel? So we'll be talking about that. We'll also be talking about the second session is what is love, speaking the truth in love to LGBT friends. So these are, these are some really practical uh, this is some really practical training in the, for the real world and how to be uh, better equipped to share the gospel. So you want to come Saturday if you can all help it to that. Uh, it'll start at 8.30. There'll be breakfast, and it's free. So, so join us on Saturday for that. Also, if you're a, an international student or scholar, um, our uh, Life Among the Nations ministry is having a luncheon right after this across the grass at the... Um, at the uh, Christian Challenge Building. That's what it is. Uh, so if you're one of those, if that's you, then please join us for lunch. We'd love to, to have you come join us. Uh, if you'd stand with me now as I uh, read from, uh, from Romans 11, and let's listen to Paul's words as we, as we go out today. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You are dismissed.